Last time on Video Night. I've only got one foot Aha! on something solid. Oh, what the hell? What version did I watch? And now. Video night. Hello, Michael. Hey, what's up? So, have you ever been in a situation in which you had to run away from somebody? Uh, Preferably at night. Preferably in some sort of uh, city kind of area. Considering maybe a suburb. What a chicken I am! You think I would have, but I cannot recall a time that I ran in fear. I'm usually just like walk fast, walk fast, look away, look away, look away. Oh my god! You know, panic inside, and then nothing happens. But uh, uh, no, why have you? I, I was thinking about this too. I don't think so. But yet in movies, it's always like that. But you can't you can't go into the city without being terrorized, and you can't go to the country. It's always like, what's up, city boy? I like the look of your lips. Get over here. <laughs> I've not been in too many crazy situations. Like, there's not much terror that you can get in when you drive down to a beach city in Southern California. Accidentally drive on the one-way street the opposite direction because the streets are all oddly Poor MapQuest is drunk. Take a left now! Now! No, now! Now! Turn left! Turn left now! Now! In 15 feet, turn right! What? What? <laughs> <laughs> or no surf Nazis are hanging out at the corner store near that beach yeah. town or whatever. <laughs> Nothing like that happened Well, it's ever. never like Death so. Wish 3. For some reason, I thought the city was always going to be Death Wish 3. I saw that movie as a kid, and I was like, maybe in the big city, because I actually lived in a decent-sized city. I lived in Fort Wayne, which I think now is like 150,000, maybe more, maybe 250. But the most you ever saw was like that one weird hooker who actually was a dude, and you're like, Daddy, why is that woman so ugly? And he's like, well, someday I'll tell you. <laughs> And then he puts on that Aerosmith song. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I get it now. Thank you. No, I've never seen, like, roving <laughs> gangs and, and stuff like this. You always see this in movies. Yeah. Movies like Enemy Territory. On Friday night, Barry Rapchick, the insurance agent, had one last appointment to make in the South Bronx. Do you know which apartment Elva Briggs is in? Don't touch me, mother! I've had a very long day, and I have neither the time nor the patience for any more of you kids playing Scarface with me. All he had to do was get the papers signed. I'm sorry, I can't take cash. If I signed, I've got the payment. Well, it's all right. Collect the premium. And get out alive. Look, this is crazy. Did a vampire do that? They're trapped in enemy territory, and the vampires want the money and their blood. You go through this floor, room by room, closet by closet. There's a war going on out there, man. And this time, I'm not going down. We want the ghost and the traitor. Gary Bradley, Ray Parker Jr., and Jan Michael Vincent are caught behind the lines in enemy territory. So, Enemy Territory, this is one of your picks. Yeah, this is uh, Empire Pictures. Not known for quality. Not known for quality. I think uh, Reanimator. Yeah. That's probably their only legit. Troll. No, Troll Troll. Sucks. Troll. You, do you like Troll? Troll, I know. But, but I mean, no, it hit the theaters, though. It was actually in yeah, theaters. Trolls, Troll and Ghoulies are their oh. big hits. And they basically survived off that for four or five years. Movies shot overseas for nothing. They saved a lot of money that way. Mostly made horror and sci-fi. But this is one of the only straight-up, like, action movies they made. It was Enemy Territory. Barely released. More of an, like, oh, hey, it's on Cinemax a lot. You know, I think that's the first time I had heard of it. But I didn't catch it until later when I had my massive VHS collection. And I actually really 
really do enjoy this movie, and I feel like you ever watch a movie and you go, wow, this this part seems a lot like another movie I've seen before. It's, it seems like it might be inspired by, you know? Like the way the crow is with the wraith, or uh, the rundown is with gunmen, uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You feel like the, the director saw that, or the writer saw that, and was like, well, I can make a better movie of this and expand upon that world. Right, okay. So what movie do you think this influenced or was influenced by? What well, no, I'm saying Enemy Territory, I feel like, influenced the last movie we're going to talk about on this episode, which we'll reveal later. Yeah, my favorite. Okay, so I had never seen or heard of Enemy Territory. I've seen so much from cable and then eventual video stores, and I worked at a blockbuster, so I knew a bunch of stuff. I was there IMDb before IMDb was a thing, but I still never knew of this one. Yeah, this... Uh... I didn't even know the Empire story behind it or nothing. No, I don't. It's still strange that Empire only made... I really think they only made one action movie. Everything else was sci-fi horror and a few random, like... I don't know why they even bothered to do comedies, because they were all failures. Buy and sell. Ugh. And they made one with Andrew Stevens. I don't know. I can't remember the name of that one. Down the Drain or something like that. Oh, that's... Not, that's You don't ever want to name your movie. This is going to be a failure. <laughs> and that's what the title Down the Drain yeah. sounds like to me. The, uh, don't watch this movie. It's gonna and, suck. And here's the weird thing is... This is one of their only, like, legitimately decent films. Everything else is like, you have to take it with a grain of salt. You're like, wow, the special effects were good. Like, I love Arena, but I know it's not a good movie. It's just an entertaining movie. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for finally admitting that. We've had this debate going on for 30 years, by the way, Michael and I, and we've only known each other for about five. We had to to break through the time barrier to get more time on this one. To have this debate about Arena. Not a good movie. Cool monster rubber things. My whole stance is, yeah, but no. Michael's has been, no, but yeah. (laughs) And finally, he admits to yeah. Well, Arena to me is a Marvel movie. You know, it feels like a a really low-budget early Marvel movie. And that's what I kind of enjoy about the concept. Actually, you know... You, you think about it Guardians of the Galaxy man this is going to be a digression Guardians of the Galaxy sort of thing and where the new Marvel uh, Thor Ragnarok is going to go it does seem like it could have been that kind of a Marvel cosmic sci-fi yeah silly those comics never do well anyway so let's go crazy well, uh, you're right well this is what I'm sure the pitch meeting went blood sport in space and it was like go for it and the pitch meeting for enemy territory was well what if Death Wish wasn't out in the city was all trapped in a building instead of the hero going after the villains the villains are coming after the hero and the hero is an insurance salesman (laughs) uh i didn't know who any of these i didn't know gary frank at all after i had seen the movie mom was like oh yeah he was on the show family and he was really good on it i think i guess he got nominated for an emmy for the show and so he kind of had a little bit of notoriety at the time i i couldn't tell you anything he's made since this sure but he's actually a a pretty likable decent actor a guy who is good at playing kind of a nebbish insecure person who's just oh i gotta get a paycheck i gotta do my job this you know what though think about this if brian benben was in this role the role would actually be cheesed up brian benben does that same character in a lot of his work and it totally works for most of what he does but imagine brian benben doing this role in this movie and it would have made it too comical right he would have done the uh, one-liner the stakes wouldn't actually be there right gary frank is an everyman he doesn't say things well he'll, he'll say something that's kind of funny but he is not saying it intentionally to be funny you know what i mean like the way brian Bender, right like, like a wise ass fletch kind of one-liner it's yeah. based on the situation is why it's funny his character here this sucks this really sucks he's given a territory because he's insurance salesmen have territories and they have to go into these territories and get x amount of whatever sign papers 
for their quota or else they get docked and moved to a different territory and that's what happened to him he gets moved to the ghetto and not just like the ghetto we're Where, talking like the worst of the worst kind of like they're just one step away from being like post-apocalyptic like that kind of world yeah so the cops actually don't come around very often to this area which is a theme that's going to come up actually in the rest of the movies and in the tenants of this building there's an old black woman who has uh stacy dash is her granddaughter her first role by the way stacy dash and he's going to visit the woman to have her sign over the life insurance thing and he's got to go there right now or else because i don't know his boss is yelling at him so he does it and it's nighttime and you don't want to be there because that apartment block is run by this gang called the vampires now there's two other apartment blocks each of them have a gang inside so this whole situation is not very good for anybody who is sadly to say this movie was made in the 80s it has a lot of possibly intended political comments possibly not it could have just been an exploitation film that doesn't care and just says black gang asian gang or latino gang or something but the vampires are a black gang i think led by tony todd is this his first role? Because I, I don't think I've ever seen Tony Todd in anything uh, before this. I don't know, but it's his, certainly his most lively role, and I really enjoyed that. You think he was a theater actor? Because I get the feeling that he did a lot of stage work, and that's how he got noticed, and you know, and then they grabbed him for this, because he has a very big, almost like Shakespearean quality to his performance. Well, you're right. He's very big. He's very just broad, very loud. He's very active in this role, and I appreciate that because any other role that I've seen him in, usually isn't very active isn't very broad or loud no it's very subdued menacing sure but i don't know if it's just because they're like you're just too big of a dude and stop moving or <laughs> well, actually, or if he's i think he's pretty lively i don't think you've ever seen the movie it's called excessive force with thomas ian griffith and lance henriksen he's pretty theatrical in that and i thought he was pretty good in the rock kind of a big performance but you know most people know him as the candy man or those style of performances right that's that's actually what i'm talking about those darker horror movies where he's just the menacing guy right so yeah you're right i haven't seen that in the movie so here he's the leader of the vampires and how the trouble starts really is our protagonist enters the hallway and touches in some way like can you move please this little thug and the thug goes crazy on him pulls out a knife all that and he's like whoa 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 i'm just trying to get by you it's like the littlest thing and also because he's a white man in a suit and he's holding a briefcase he represents the big money the banks even though he is actually not rolling in the money yeah just a blue collar guy like you and me he's also in a similar situation though he probably has a nicer house than this apartment block he's in a similar situation financially as these people are he's also kept down by the system the very same system that they hate this movie is complicated and has themes however it's presented in a way that says no complication no themes (laughs) yeah if it had been a better director or better writer i think they would have tapped into the social commentary a little bit deeper do you think it's necessary though i don't know i feel like the best ideas are usually presented through movies like this where it's not smashing you in the head it's just kind of under the radar well maybe i don't know maybe they did do it the right way so because we're talking about it right now but in the way it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't hammering into our head like okay i got your point but that's usually genre films usually get the best social commentary across because you start well that's thinking about yes, it. you're like exactly i agree with you genre pictures are always 
the best platforms. A movie like Pay It Forward is just too on the nose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie isn't really trying to do that. So I think maybe... I, I was feeling uncomfortable by some of the supposed stereotypes that were presented to us in this film. But also, I'm supposed to feel uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at the movie like Hard Target and they think it's just a full-on action movie. But the thing that resonates with me is the treatment of homeless people as if they're just useless garbage to be played with and then thrown away. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, you're right. Commentary like that in these types of movies. There is even more than this. There's the black man who is a working man who does his job. And that is played by Ray Parker Jr. Is this his only role? I think so. Shockingly, he's not that bad. Uh, usually when you see, like... The guy is oozing charisma. Yeah, you see an actor he's just or a cool you see a musician dude. do a, a role like this. He only does one. You're like, oh, you must be terrible. And no, he was fine. Now, he comes to the aid of our protagonist. So, now we have two protagonists. And his whole point is, I see a man in need, I'm going to help him. He's on the uh, the positive version of the Vietnam vet, and he's, which means he's not suffering too much from PTSD, but he does see that, you know, his role in life is to help people, even though that's not his job. His job, he's like, what, an electrician or something? Yeah, I believe so. His life is a man in need, go help him. Also, our protagonist gradually gets more and more moxie as he goes along. But they do need help from Stacy Dash. She has more information on where they can go. So this is this one big apartment complex. It's like levels. All throughout this time where they're getting help from Stacy Dash, the vampires are going from the top to the bottom looking for where they've gone and they've locked down the place too and they go to another vietnam vet who has not handled the whole vietnam thing very well and he's a shut-in played by jan michael vincent or jan michael vincent the funny thing is every time i see him now i always feel like he is letting his personal demons come onto the screen like he always seems like he's full of rage you ever watch i mean i'm a big fan of airwolf so i kind of went and explored a lot of his movies and i feel like the character he plays in this and like Big Wednesday, he's basically playing himself, a guy who cannot control his problems. And it's kind of Big Wednesday, the surf movie from the late 70s. Yeah. I didn't see that from that. I think that might have been actually a character. Uh, I... But it's strange how much that would be almost prophetic if they didn't know that he was going to destroy himself the way he has. Well, right. So he hit the stardom with Airwolf and various other uh, parts in movies and sometimes TV shows, but Airwolf was his bread and butter, and he hit his whole stardom. Jan Michael Vincent. He had been doing stuff in the 70s and stuff, but that was it. You want a TV series in the 80s, and that's what he did, and then it got canceled and he got replaced or something? Yeah, it got canceled because CBS was losing lots of money on it. They were uh, losing probably 50%, but they were trying to get to the point where they get to syndication. They wanted to get 100 episodes, but he was such a problem, and and the flight sequences were costing so much. They're like, you know what? Let's just start from scratch. Season four of Airwolf, which was USA's first original series. Kill his character off in the first episode. They kill off Ernest Borgnine. And they replace the whole cast. And they reuse all of the flight footage. So the show suffers. It's not very good. Season four is really, really rough. Right. You got, you got to be so like a hardcore So the problem, player. though, is a man who doesn't understand how to handle success. Yeah. And his alcoholism just got out of control. And this is, I think, his first it was either this or born in east la was his first post airwolf job gotcha so here though he is playing gruff and you can probably see what you're talking about like where he's just like these are my lines i'm just gonna yell them and be gruff and by the way i didn't know it was jan michael vincent before i saw him i couldn't tell by his voice oh he was that raspy yeah he had that rasp to his voice that was like that's 
Who's this guy? Who is it gonna be? Oh, what? Jan Michael Vincent in a wheelchair with machine guns? Okay, I guess. You know, it, it sucks that that's the way he is actually right now. He actually had to have a leg removed last year because of, I think, diabetes or something. But that, it was all because wow. of... Wow, are all of his movies somehow prophecy of his eventual life? I don't know. There's this a movie called Redline where you see him immediately after the car crash that he was in. And he's on screen playing this character and his face is completely sliced up he's in a cast it's all bruised and met, swollen and you're like why would you finish this movie did you need the money that bad and that was one of his last roles and in i saw an interview with him about 10 years ago he doesn't even remember ever being an actor he has no memory of this whatsoever it's not alzheimer's it's the the alcohol destroyed his brain oh jeez. yeah he had no clue who he was before that moment and the, the person from entertainment tonight's like you don't remember being in the mechanic with charles bronson airwolf wins a war and stuff like that he goes no like I have no idea what you're talking about. Good God. I know. That has at once got to be frustrating and possibly liberating. True, I guess. Depending I guess on your you, perspective. If you don't remember what you've lost, you know, knowing that he was he was an A-lister, but he was a household name. You know, if you have no memory of that, I guess there's no depression from it. Like, oh God, what was, you know, what was I 10 years ago? Yeah. Huh. Yes, yeah, wow. so this, this role is strangely prophetic. Yeah. It is. But he helps them, actually, and in a way, it's like a video game. You have different levels. Every beneficial character that comes along, including the child that gets them out through the basement, they stick around and help them. It is very much like a video game, if you think about it. Yeah. There are moments of power-ups. There are moments of, a, like, a little flashing pistol. Not really, but a flashing pistol that he has to pick up type of thing. Hurry, quick, get the gun. All right, cool. The movie, surprisingly, is decent for so shoestring, because it's one low Location. It's super easy to shoot in. Yeah, there's a couple awkward sequences I wish they'd reshoot. You know the scene where they're, they're going to climb down the elevator shaft and all of a sudden one of the vampires comes around the corner and he's like, yeah. and it's like really clumsy and he's kind of awkwardly falls into the elevator. I was like, oh, you should have shut that. That looks terrible. How many takes? One. One take. We gotta go. Move. <laughs> we got a schedule to keep, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. If you look at the, uh, the record of films by, is it Charles Band or Charles Band? Yeah, yeah, Empire is the full moon guy. Yeah, yeah I would say 50-50 shot on it being a watchable movie if it was Empire. Once it moved over to full moon, you're like you're talking like 10%. There's like maybe five movies out of that entire catalog that are watchable. Yep. Now, in the 80s, there was a, an actor that was really super popular who was only doing one kind of role and that was the not ugly dorky but absolutely not a dork dream boy but presented as a goober fun guy and that's patrick dempsey oh yeah 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 can't buy me love you know what's funny is did you know that he played damone on the fast times at richmond high tv show that was like his first major role huh no yeah <laughs> i know you love everything fast time i do i'm obsessed so with yeah movie. so he is he was he was a heartthrob but what was it what was the other one Pizza Boy? Lover Boy. Lover Boy, which was basically Pizza Boy. Uh, yeah. Those were the major two heartthrob things, but he started trying to do other things. I know he did something called Bank Robber, which was originally NC-17 and hard to find. Can't find that Whoa. thing for nothing. But he did I this movie. I had that movie. on VHS. Oh, really? Never got around to watching it. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this movie, Run. From Hollywood Pictures. He was set up for a crime he didn't commit. Now, everyone wants him dead. Run, rated R. It's something that he, I remember seeing the trailer for a long time ago. 
like when it came out. Yeah, I was actually going to see it in the theater. I lived in a very small town where we only played one movie at a time. You kept it for two weeks or whatever and you moved on. And they had run and for some reason I just never got around to watching it. And I saw it on video and I was like, this is decent, this is okay. But I hadn't seen it since. Now this is one of those lost Disney movies. Disney owned Hollywood Pictures and Touchstones and there's maybe five movies in their catalog that they've never put on DVD or digital. You have Run, The Rescue, Offbeat with Judge Reinhold, and uh, there's another one in my head. You know, these were theatrical releases. They weren't hits, but they made a decent amount of money, and they didn't cost much. But for some reason, Disney has completely ignored them, so you're not going to find a widescreen version of this movie. Unless, I mean, did you? Because I, I got those uh, from me think, VHS. Yeah, it's widescreen. It's widescreen? Yeah. Holy crap. I burped as I said widescreen. Did you hear that? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I heard you just stutter. Okay, so you you have the widescreen version. Oh, yeah, the one I found, yeah. I only have the it, crappy old full screen version, which looks like Yeah, garbage. it might be a TV rip. I'm not sure, like a satellite TV rip. I'm not sure. Maybe. I'm fascinated when young teeny bopper guys try to do action, because if you look at the Brat Pack, every single one of those guys attempted some sort of action movie to try to legitimize themselves, get them a new audience, and every single one of them was a match. Of failure, and while Patrick Dempsey except for what? Emilio, come on. Oh, Emilio well, okay, you know what? You're right, Emilio's. I love Emilio. <laughs> Well, let's get to Emilio later. Yeah. So Patrick Dempsey is a kid who just is going from... Where's his destination, actually? No, I don't remember that part. It's... They've used this... He's on, like, a road trip. He's delivering a car, right? Like the way it was on Hitcher? I think that's what it was. I just forget the very beginning of it. But he ends up uh, having to stop off in a small city that is a highly corrupt city and has an underground gambling ring. And he is taken to this gambling spot and inadvertently gets in a scuffle with the mobster's son, who is just a hothead, and the mobster's son falls and hits himself on the corner of the counter, even though our hero kid, Patrick, is not part of it. He's like, I didn't do anything. And he really didn't. But you have all kinds of eyewitnesses who are drunk, drugged up, or just not wanting to say Yeah, or they're sick of fans, you know, of that mobster. Yeah, and one person knows the truth, or is willing to speak the truth, eventually, and that is Kelly Preston. And she's a server at the club and he has to just run basically the title of the movie yeah you know what's disappointing about this movie is yes it's a Disney movie they had money at this time and they shot this in Canada I, I can kind of see that you know save yourself a little bit of money but could they have at least got a decent villain I was certain for years that Ben Gazzara was the villain and then I'm just like, oh, no, it's just a guy who looks like a Canadian version of Ben Gazzara. That's that's the one thing that bothers <laughs> He's me. Got a, he, they couldn't, that guy looks like when he was younger, he was a boxer. Yeah. I just wish they had spent a little bit more money getting better villain. I mean, not that the guy's a terrible actor, but it just wasn't what I wanted. And that's the only downfall. He's just a functional guy who's just like, get the kid who killed my well, kid. Well, it looks like a TV movie with this guy instead of a legitimate theatrical release. Well, actually, yeah, it looks like a TV movie with this movie. Yeah, the bad. cinematography and everything isn't that great set pieces are actually pretty good. Yeah, this is from the director of Young but, Guns 2. So the guy knows how to handle interesting action sequences, but you're right, the, the budget on this is way different than Young Guns 2. It, the, the cinematography just isn't there, and of course, mind you, I, I watched the VHS version, so it looked like garbage anyway. Oh, right, yes. So even that, it suffers. But there's a sequence where he is running through the bowling alley, oh, which awesome. it's pretty adequately shot. They could have done it in a different kind of way, but I think they would have had to 
really dismantled and widened out so the cameras can get in and out of the inner workings of the machines that throw the pins out. Mm -hmm. I think they were actually just inside the guts of a bowling alley. You know why? I I don't think that they actually were on a set or anything. You know why I like this movie so much? Why I liked it more now than before? Why? Is that I finally understand, you know, how special effects and stunts and everything work and all I saw the entire movie was Patrick Dempsey just basically throwing himself into every single action sequence. He was like, almost like a Jackie Chan without the martial arts, but he was, I mean, Oh uh, like yeah, there's no finesse. Yeah, he, he, there's zero finesse to his moves, but, but, but he's I like, get what you're saying. He's almost like a cartoon character. If you combine Jim Carrey and Jackie Chan, this is Patrick Dempsey. Like, this the sequence where he's throwing himself face first down the flight of stairs, and then he comes around... Yeah, I was gonna mention he that. He comes around the corner and then grabs onto the pole and flips himself out underneath it to avoid all the bullets. And I'm like, what actor does that? Yeah, really. And like, so you're right about that. There's a lot of impressive stuff, and I think that has to do with him like wanting to get out from under just being the cute guy. And I did notice the jumping off of the side of the building onto the stair rail closer towards the end. I'm like, that? Wait, he just did that? It's not good parkour, but he did it? Yeah, he's just like kind of a cartoon character. He just takes a serious beating and just keeps going. You're like, how does he... <laughs> I would be so bruised because... And he's thin. He doesn't have the muscle as cushiony. Yeah, yeah. He's a very thin dude. He gets his shirt off a few times for the ladies. Is, is he like one of the only like neurotic, I would almost say Woody Allen types that does <laughs> does an action movie? Uh, okay, you're misrepresenting. Hey, I'm going to say, saying Woody Allen like is going to actually send people into thinking that he's very Woody Allen like. He's not. He's just kind of a, a smart ass. He has a very smart ass way of presenting himself, which Woody Allen did too. I get what you're saying. I totally understand you, but if you've never seen it, you wouldn't think that it's No, Woody I just Allen. think it's funny how the way he talks um, is like this weird nervous energy where he's just talking and talking and talking. I respect you. It's a game of poker. It's nothing personal. Look, I have no desire to make you feel bad or rub your nose in the feet, okay? Wrong choice of words. What I meant to say was, look, <laughs> look at my arm. Look, I think I should warn you. I was on my high school boxing <laughs> Most action stars don't talk this much. They're kind of introverted. I mean, with the exception of, like, John McClane. But he just kind of has a... Well, the thing is, he isn't an action yeah. star. And he's not an action hero. And he's not an action character. And that's what makes the movie compelling. Yeah. He's just a guy. And you actually believe at some point that, oh, well, you know, he could get seriously hurt. Because he's not going to be able to, like, take a hit <laughs> very well. He's also got a brain. And the deal is, I think he's a, studying to be a lawyer type of thing. So he's, he actually knows some things. So he knows to call the FBI and not go to the local police. He knows that there's some sort of corruption going on because there's also police chasing him. And he witnesses one of them kill another cop. And he eventually does get some help much needed from Kelly Preston, who is a wavering character. Sometimes she wants to help him, sometimes she doesn't. And then eventually she does flip. And right before the scene that explains it, she is very cold to him. Mm -hmm. And then she flips to being nice to him. And I'm sitting here thinking, why suddenly this is weird? The tone is different. She's nice. She's brighter. She's smiling at him. She's not afraid of him. She's not acting. And then he asks the question. Where did this come from all of a sudden? What? You think I'm going to go back to work tomorrow, dealing cards again for Halloran? Pretend none of this ever happened. I want to do something. Yeah, me too. I want to get out of here. But if we both told what really happened... Look, guys like Halloran, they can get away with anything. That's the way it is. You and I are not going to change it. Exactly. Because we're not doing anything about it. 
That's why you were so pissed at me, right? Because I kept my mouth shut? I was thankful for that scene. Yeah, because you, you start wondering. I was like, did the studio see dailies and they decided to change it at the last minute? But no, they actually explained this change. So that's very good, and I was really happy about that. I just wish that overall, despite the interesting action setups and, and the set pieces like that, I wish that it was handled visually much more interesting because you could still handle action visually interestingly. You just always had to get some sort of like Jan DeBont to be the cinematographer or something. Yeah. The, and that was way too much money. Well, and, and I was thinking like there's only one action sequence that has visual depth and that's the mall. And, you know, I, I yeah, love this era. Kind of, so many scenes were in a mall during the late 80s, early 90s. But they kind of they kind of squander that. He's in the mall for like 15 steps into the mall but he's got to get out of the mall immediately. They don't hang out in the mall and have them run around too much. And I think that had to do with like... Oh, budgetary. They, can't, they don't have... Yeah, they, they yeah, can they only rent the mall for probably mall. like two or three days. Yeah. I don't hate myself having watched it. I thought I might be like totally bored. Yeah. But the first time I tried to watch this, I was falling asleep because it was like 1 a.m. or something. And then I, I finished it earlier. And yeah, it's all right. It's not bad. Action's fine. So also, in the early 90s, you had race relations like, like now. And I'm dating us. It's 2017. I don't usually like to date the shows. But 2017 is a pretty volatile time racially, with all the white supremacists popping up oh, yeah. there. So in the early 90s, 1992 in particular, when this film came out, you had the L.A. riots, which were just rife with looters. You had men being pulled out, just minding their own business, trying to get their truck from one end of town to the other, being pulled out of their truck and bashed to pieces, barely surviving. Men who are innocent of any sort of thing, and they're just being pulled out by horrible people. A lot of misguided anger during the riots. You know, the one thing I never understand about riots is why do they always destroy their own neighborhood? They're always just, it's like, well, that's a black-owned business. Why are black people destroying? I don't understand. Why aren't they going to Beverly Hills? <laughs> Thinking that, I don't understand. Okay, so for those of you listening who don't know what I'm talking about, yes, it was uh, primarily black or minority-driven riots in L.A. at the time, and it was spurned by the beating of Rodney King against the corrupt and often overly violent LAPD. There were like eight guys beating them or something. There's a whole documentary put out by National Geo graphic that just dropped is called LA 92 you should check it out if you want to just know a bit it's been 25 years we're so old (laughs) yeah so this movie that we're about to talk about was called looters it's no longer called looters and it came out in the theater and it wasn't called looters and when they realized uh wait we're in the middle of LA we have this riot situation going on every news channel was calling looters 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 we have a problem on our hands what do we call this movie it's a problem because because it's a primarily black cast. There's two white people. What do we call this movie? We're gonna get flack. So they put their heads together and they figured it out. It's called Trespass. Bill Paxton, Ice T, William Sadler, Ice Cube. We're past the point of no return. Trespass, rated R, coming soon. Yeah, and don't be confused. We're not talking about the trespass with Nicolas Cage and Nicole Kidman, which is god-awful. We're talking about the 1992 Walter Hill film with Bill Paxton, William Sadler, Ice-T, and Ice Cube. And I have a frustrating time with this film. There's stuff that I love, and there's stuff that I just absolutely hate. And I, I hate the fact that Walter Hill decided to throw away the script for the dialogue pieces of Ice-T and Ice Cube and let them improv it. Because every five seconds is... Three white because they got my kids brother in there three white mother down here who are they the man 
all day, all day. It sounds like white noise. It can, yeah, it can get pretty bad, which is why I think I didn't really go near this movie too much. I had seen it on cable before, and I just, you know, not really connected to it. But this time, you know, for the show, I watched it with intent. And there's some very interesting things going on, and I then later read about it. And also, the looters thing, like I said, Walter Hill was like, I didn't set out to make a political movie. There's nothing political about this. However, sometimes the film, the art, the thing has a life of its own afterwards. Yeah. And influenced by the time with the L.A. riots, this movie took on slightly different meaning. It is essentially a remake of Treasure of the Sierra Madre. You know, badges. We don't need no stinking badges. Oh, I couldn't even tell what you just said. He said such a thing. I said I couldn't tell what you just said. Uh, <laughs> they said something about matches. And I was like, what? Are you doing a, are you doing a Peter Lorre impersonation? Man, well, no. we don't need any matches. <laughs> badges? Treasure of Sierra Madre and this movie are the same. It's a search for gold. Hidden gold. Where do you find it? Not in a cave. Not in Sierra Madre. You find it in an old factory. Two firefighters, they're clearing rooms of a burning building, and they find an old man who has a treasure map, and he says, I told from Jesus Christ, I did before my apartment. I never told. Here, take it, take it. And they're like, what? And then he burns himself to death, knowing that he's going to burn. He's taking this through his grave, except here's the map. They figure it out. It's Bill Paxton and William Sadler. And they decide to go to this place on their off hours. And they're searching high and low for it. And they just can't seem to find it. Meanwhile, you have the opposing gangs in the neighborhood meeting up with each other. One kills the other. And it's all seen by William Sadler and Bill Paxton. They Sadler, both? they both witness it. Sadler is out there and he's seeing what's going on. Whereas Paxton only sees, from his perspective, he's lower. And he only sees a body fall. And then he's like, I'm not looking for trouble. Is that right? No, man, like I said, I'm not looking for trouble. This is when they're basically, it's almost like a siege, like a Assault on Precinct 13 kind of scenario where they're in a tight space, trapped, trying to get out. And then they have the opposing gang trying to do whatever they can to get these guys. They find out about Now, them. this only fits the criteria for this on the run or in the city sort of thing in that it is in a city, in a factory, an old dilapidated factory. And some of the city has come to them and they are stuck in a spot. So this is basically this entire movie is the third act of any of the other movies. Right. Well, I, I like the fact that you're taking something so big and you're making it claustrophobic. I, have you ever lived in a big city? I lived in Nashville. Uh, was it fairly wide open city. or did you feel claustrophobic? No, not claustrophobic at all. See, that's the weird thing about Portland is that you feel very, very trapped. I don't know why I fell in love with the city because I went back the last time and it never really dawned on me that it's like these little clusters and there's so many people and there's so many cars, there's so many buildings, you can't see, even see the sky in some parts and, and you're just like, oh god, I can't breathe here, I'm, I'm, I'm suffocating. Then you go to Salem and it's just like, oh, everything's just like, you know, I think the most is like a building that's six stories tall and there's only a couple of those and you're like, oh, okay, this is the kind of city where I can survive. Yeah, so if you're a tourist in Nashville, you're going to go down, down Nashville and that's where that is and it's not very large, but the rest of Nashville... Nashville is spread out, and there's a lot of little pockets of suburbs. Not a lot of eye pollution, big buildings, or anything. Yeah, it's just kind of funny when you see that in movies because nobody really thinks of a city being tight and claustrophobic. But that's what they do with all of these movies. They find well, except Run. Run is pretty wide open because it's shot in Canada, and nothing's really claustrophobic about Canada. But <laughs> enemy territory. Yeah, it's all in one. 
and then our yep. last movie is a lot about claustrophobia. Yeah. So here, though, the heroes, which they're not necessarily heroes either. Yeah, I think it's funny when you automatically assume that the white people are the, the heroes, the protagonists, when it turns out there's all a little bit of dirt. Every single one of them's a little dirty. Yeah, so Bill Paxton and William Sadler are the firefighters, so that's a blue-collar thing. That's a relatable job. That's uh, every man. The villains here, which they are obviously the major villains, are is a gang. And within the gang, there is gang squabbling. So some members want to take out Ice-T, some members side with Ice Cube, so it's two Ices versus each other. But it's much more subtle than that because it's played in a bit more Shakespearean way. There's a lot of conferring over to the side and stuff. But as you said, with a lot of unwholesome language. Those rappers. I watched this with my youth pastor. What? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Well, we had just seen Aliens. I just watched Aliens for the first time and I was obsessed with Bill Paxton all of a sudden. And I was like, this guy's amazing. I gotta see him in everything. And we heard Trespassing come out on video. And I think we rented Trespass and Monolith Ah. at the same time. And I remember being Monolith was like, ah, it was kind of boring. The special effects sucked. It was an okay story, but I gotta watch Trespass. Because I just started discovering who Walter Hill was. And uh, I got really excited. And I remember after it was over with, I was like, man, that was a good story. But I don't think I could ever watch that with my parents in the room. (laughs) So much swearing. You couldn't? No, no, you really couldn't. That's one of the great things about being an adult without your parents around. Now you can watch all the MFing shows ever or movies (laughs) or whatever. And by that we mean Master Fridge. Yes, that's actually what I mean. The Master Fridge. There's Uh, only one. I can get get whatever out of the fridge I want. I don't have to ask permission. We're good. Could also mean Mini Fridge. Mini Fridge, that's much better. Damn it. (laughs) So, Bill Paxson here is the only sympathetic lead. They do find a hobo who is living in... I love Art Evans in this. He is actually really likable. Yeah, so you have the hobo and you have Bill Paxson. Those are the only actual likable characters. And Bill Paxson is actually kind of vanilla in this. He does do a lot of, like, what? No, not me! You know, big, broad, responsive Bill Paxson. But he doesn't do that mania, that manic stuff that he's known for. So this is another job in which he's actually really acting and not goofing. So I think he's fine. I think his character is actually fine. He doesn't want to do what William Sadler keeps telling him to do. Hold him at gunpoint. You know, tie him up. Do this. He's like, we can get out of this without any... He's naive. Sadler isn't naive. But Sadler, being the more wise to the situation character, also becomes somewhat of a villain. Yeah, and of course, you and I are huge fans of William Sadler, and this is one of his only shots at being like, you know, face on the poster, name above the title, you know, that kind of lead. And he's good in this, but sometimes you wonder if it was best that he was left to like the supporting roles because he it looks like he has more fun when he's doing the support work. I think he has a lot more freedom or a more clarity. Of, it's, it's a it's a hard thing unless you're like working with James Gunn or something to carry a movie. Yeah, you really have to understand actors, and, and it's not that Walter Hill doesn't understand actors. Do you think he does he, understand act- actors? Well, most of the movies that I've seen him do are like he's moving around action figures. Yeah, it seems like most of the characters... He's got two movies that are amazing. Which ones are, in your opinion? Southern Comfort yep. and Streets of Fire. <laughs> oh, Neither of those movies suck in any kind of way. All of the characters are real, realistic, even if Streets of Fire is a fantastic fantasy kind of version of rock and roll Americana. Yeah. They're all legit. There's no moving action figures around like he does in all the other movies that he does. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Johnny Handsome is uh, highly underrated too. That was a big bomb. You know, you could do an entire episode just on the movies that Walter Hill did that bomb that should have been hits and for some reason just didn't connect. Extreme Prejudice. How was that? That movie? That was like the manliest movie ever made. It made a, like a penny. It made a little dime. Yeah. Still though, 
though, a bit action figurey. Yeah, they are. It's it's not it's not how people really act. And and you're right. Walker Hill has a very specific vision, but it's not really a natural, like normal everyday kind of vision. There's something about this movie that has a bit more bad feeling that makes it not one of the other two. You know, it's all right. This movie, yeah. Trespass. I like Deborah White in this too. He was really. Oh good. yeah. I mean, the ruse of him using his heroin addiction to get out of the situation. Uh, how he does it. Yeah. He kind of telegraphs it for a second just before and you're like oh right he's gonna but right before that you're thinking no he really needs it it's kind of clever there's something about this movie that just makes me feel bad yeah it's not a it's not a clean movie it, it makes you feel like you need to take a shower afterwards because everybody in it's kind of rotten so which brings us to the social commentary of the whole thing working class whites versus and there's no racial attitude either they're just we've got to get out of this situation versus inner city mostly black if not all gangsters who call themselves businessmen but they all have guns and they want to shoot people because they witness somebody yeah you so, know before we did this episode i was worried that people would think that we're doing an episode where it was just about white people versus black people because the enemy territory in this movie that's clearly not the point mm-hmm. it's just it's, it's stuff you know I, I thought about doing warriors but everybody yeah, talks nah. about the warriors that's not like a hit but but so enemy territory ray show, parker jr we said the name we didn't say he's a black man stacy dash we didn't yeah. we implied that she's a black girl because granddaughter of the black woman, the old black woman. That's why I mentioned it. The vampires are a black gang, but there's lots of other people in the building that were black that helped them. So right, and that's how this is. Except this one, there's only one black man that's helping them, and he's he's also given them a lot of grief because because the situation shouldn't have happened the way it did. But William Sadler in particular. Yeah, it kind of ends as you expect it to end too, on a more down note. Yeah, I mean, Art Evans gets away with the cat. Bill Paxton gets the nothing. Gold. <laughs> there's the only two likable characters are the only two uh, guys that get away and and the one but in a, in a way Bill Paxton finds peace in the fact that he gave that away because he I think he saw that gold as a reminder of the stupid decision that he made and it was better off I mean he had a job a well-paying job and that homeless man he could really use that you know money to start yeah so it would be an albatross around his neck for the rest of his life if he if he had so so if you want to hear a bunch of gangster rap and cussings trespass isn't just that it's a little bit more but well it, it's a it's a smart script written by robert zemeckis and bob gale the guys who did back to the future i think they're somewhere i bet you in the original script there was a little more uh nuance depth yeah. and heart i think maybe in it lost because of the fact that he decided he wanted to be more authentic so he allowed ice teen ice cube to improv which i think damages the movie yeah well i'm not sure if it was so much improv as it was writing their own lines because i know that he let them take care of their own dialogue and i don't know if that meant onset improv or just writing it down or whatever but oh, okay speaking of soundtracks though this next movie one of my favorite soundtracks growing up really i mean i've listened to it and there's a couple songs i really know <laughs> but i i wouldn't say this is one of my favorite soundtracks for some reason i was obsessed with the encino man soundtrack hmm. i don't know well why. this movie is judgment night we saw a boy get murdered tonight. If they catch us, they're going to kill us too. This fall, there's one movie to see. Judgment Night, rated R. Starts Friday, October 15th. You're just a little victim, who? You're just a little victim, kid. <laughs> so October 1993, this movie came out. Right before this, I had for about a year, two years, stripped myself away from most of hip-hop and i never really got into gangster rap 
Yeah, I couldn't either. I was, this is my collection. Fresh Prince, DJ Jazzy Jab, Fat Boys, Beastie Boys, you know, stuff that was top 40 mainstream, you know, MC Hammer and Gangster Rap came along and I was like, I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. I just felt so raw and uh, mean-spirited. I could not get into it. And uh, this is when I started switching over to alternative. Yeah, hey, so how I did it was uh, a few years earlier, Bat Dance came on the radio. <laughs> a lot. Now, Bat Dance was by Prince, and Prince is one of these acts that everybody likes, no matter what. So, 99.1, KGGI, quadruples the music. That station was primarily R&B and hip-hop, and they would play Bat Dance a lot. Then, Power 106 would play basically the same, but a little bit more, like, club-oriented sounds. But I would flip between 99.1 and Power 106, and maybe every once in a while Kiss FM. Who cares? But... I hit what I thought was Power 106 and was playing Bat Dance, and I just left it on. And then the next song came on, and it was like the Smithereens or, I don't know, a Morrissey song or something. I was like, what is what is this? This isn't Power 106. Oh, this is 106.7 K-Rock. So I just left it there. At the same time, I started catching wind of MTV's 120 Minutes. And so I started paying attention to the alternative stuff via that. So Bat Dance is the thing that brought me over to the alternative stuff. But at the same time, I still liked my rap, but I just really didn't listen to it a lot. And then this soundtrack comes out. Dolph, the movie comes out, and the soundtrack features a bunch of alternative acts. Some straight-up alternative, some rock metal-ish. Uh, it's, it has Helmet on there, who I think most people knew just because of that one song. Uh, Unsung. Unsung, yeah, from In the Meantime. And I remember reading about them. They were a hardcore band, but I was like, In the Meantime, you know, fast, but it didn't seem like hardcore. What the hell's hardcore? And I had a friend who was like, really big into the scene and he had a whole magazine of it i was looking at all these bands and all the scenes of them like alive and i was like no nah, i don't want anything to do with that that's too horrifying like people covered in blood like beating each other up in the mosh pit that's uh. all right so we don't ever really talk about music unless it's like one of those synth soundtrack movies yeah so here we get a rare chance we get a rare chance to talk about music. Now, what we have is mostly alternative bands, but you do have a couple of harder-edged uh, headbangers ball stuff, starting with Helmet and Slayer, Biohazard, Living Color. Now, Helmet teamed with House of Pain. You played yourself, now you're pointing fingers How I robbed and raped you, bruised and scraped you But those are just lies, cause in your eyes You've been victimized, that's how you size it up You disguise it up, and try to make it look real To cover up the low self-esteem you feel Introspection, an afterthought Swimming in guilt, your favorite sport But now you're caught up in the undertow You never knew a man could sink so low But now you know, cause you're done though In a black bag, a tag on your toe I built the house, I felt the pain you're victimized but got no one to blame Just another victim You're just another victim, kid Slayer teamed with Ice-T Biohazard teamed with Onyx with the titular track Oh, 
There's also another one that was actually a crossover between metal and alternative, Face No More, and they did a song with Booyah Tribe. The only reason I know who the Booyah Tribe is from a sketch, do you remember the Idiot Box? Yeah. They had a one where it was Jerry Garcia versus all of Booyah Tribe. All you see is Jerry Garcia running like hell. Booyah Tribe's chasing him down and you see like arms and pieces of beard flying. <laughs> Alex Winter, Idiot Box. Yes, I do remember. Yeah. Now the rest of the groups are are all alternative. But it's got uh, like the harder alternative, which is therapy with... Hussein Fatal, I don't know really who that Hussein Fatal is, but the song is yeah! Come and Die. Oh yeah, I remember that one. There's a Pearl Jam song with Cypress Hill. Okay, I'll say this. I didn't listen to Gangster Rap, but I listened to Cypher still and House of Pain a lot. My God, I still remember those first guys. Well, they're, they've got a, a really weird and hooky sound. There's something very unique about them. Yeah. So it's easy to be able to latch your ears onto. Well, they would use a lot of like little bits and pieces from like horror movies and, and oddball stuff. And uh, that's something that was appealing to me. Because this is when I first started getting into like horror big time. Cypress Hill also did another song with another major, major alternative band, Sonic Youth. Is that on the soundtrack? Yeah. Cypress Hill was on it twice. Okay. Yeah. You know what's funny? I was thinking about Onyx. Do you remember Onyx's first album? What it was called? Yeah, I'm not going to say it. Yeah. Well, I said it. My friend Mike, he had it in his locker, and I was looking at it, and I said the title in my head, and I said it out loud. I go, back the fuck up. And uh, the girl next to me goes, oh, I'm sorry, am I in your way? And I go, oh, oh, no, 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 no. That's the name of the album right here. No, you're not in my way. You're good. Sorry. <laughs> I still remember that. She thought I, she was like really upset for a second. Oh, I was no. Like, oh, I was no. being mean. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sir Mix-A-Lot worked with Mud Honey on a song. Dinosaur Jr. worked with the future gorilla, Della Funky Homo sapien. Hey, I gotta start it. MCs get caught it. Off, you're soft. Dinosaur Jr. will probably score the ruin ya. But it plays this, hey, this. It's fat wave this. I portray this. Love Del. Right? Mr. Bob Lina, Mr. Bob Dabalina. <laughs> and my favorite, here's another gorilla's alumni, De La Soul with Teenage Fan Club. Now, I love Teenage Fan Club. I've never heard of them. They're so good. They're like this fuzzy... They, they end up pro- progressing further into Beach Boys melodies or harmonizings in, in their later albums. But earlier on, they have like a lot of fuzzy, distorted guitars. It's still using that kind of harmony. Uh, very big 120 minutes staple. But the song that they did called Fallen, which is my favorite song, but it doesn't sound anything like Teenage Fan Club usually does. It just seems like, let's just do something with De La Soul and make it work. And 
that's what they did. So all these other bands sound like these other bands. The Teenage Fan Club song, which is my favorite on the track on the album, totally different. Well, it's the only track you probably call hip hop, not rap. Hip hop. Yeah, well, it does the beat straight up like a easy mid tempo bounce to it. It's good. It's so good. I could go. I could. <laughs> I could seriously. Hey yo, kid, what's up? Remember when I used to be dope? Yeah. I owned a pocket full of fame, but look what you're doing now. Well, I know. Well, I know. I lost touch with reality. Now my personality is an unwanted commodity. Can't believe I used to be Mr. Steve Austin on the mic. Six million ways I used to run it. I guess Ostapola got mad. Cause I got loose circuits. So loose. I mean a mother goose with the eggs that seem to be Yeah, so like I love 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 that song i remember seeing the trailer for this on my vhs for army of darkness and i thought it was going to be the biggest movie ever in my mind this movie was amazing and it gets better every time i see it the soundtrack is great the score by alan silvestri is amazing the cinematography is amazing the action the acting everything in this film works and yet i think it made like 12 million dollars and I, I even had the poster on my wall for years this opened up against two huge movies it opened up against the good son and demolition man what were they thinking what were they thinking people right so judgment night follows a bunch of friends Jeremy Piven, he brings over a Winnebago that he finagled out of the Winnebago salesman as a, like, let me test drive it for the weekend. It's cool. I'll use it for my company that he doesn't have. He lied to him. So he's a quick talker. That's something that Jeremy Piven ended up doing for the rest of his career, playing the same character. Yeah. Now this is... Somehow, I never get tired of it. Have you seen The Goods? The Goods yeah, is, this is the same like character, basically. Yeah, but <laughs> except he doesn't get anybody into any deadly, harmful situations. So, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., is the ladies man this is where we branch off away from blacks versus whites or possible political commentary into just a straight up great thriller it's not even yeah, that actiony it's never just, plays it, a part in this yeah it's a thriller and it is so good we watched it again recently because of this podcast and dude i was again impressed and i want shout factory to revive this thing yes commentary tracks special features deleted scenes i want the score why is it you've never seen a DVD come with the soundtrack. I, I don't understand. Dirty Dancing, Fast Times Ridge My High, you know, Footloose, why aren't they well, coming with the soundtracks? I'll tell you, I don't get Blair it. Witch 2 did, and it was on that disc that was also the DVD. So you flip it over and put it in your CD player. Nice. Yeah, Thank not you, a very Lincoln. good idea. I don't want to be like, I'm going to put this in my car. Why isn't this working? Oh, i got to flip it over. Oh, where's my DVD of Blair Witch 2? <laughs> oh, it's in the car. <laughs> Not you should just be able to access it in the same way. Or oh, how about this? How about a free MP3 download? Ah, that would work because it's free and they want to just sell them. This seems like it'd be a good idea. Slap a couple bucks on. I'll I'll do that. Get Days of Confused and have both volumes of the soundtrack come <laughs> with it. So Emilio Estevez, this is why we brought up Emilio earlier. Emilio is a new father. He's been hanging out for months after his wife gave birth. And he hasn't had a night out with his buddies. And this is going to be a rare occasion anyway. So he's like, just can you give me this? And she's, for some strange reason, guilting him. But fine, go ahead. And they're just going to go 
watch a boxing match. But thank God their Winnebago has satellite, so they can watch it there if they get locked out, which they end up being frozen out by traffic. So little brother joins in, by the way, and that's Stephen Dorff. I was going to ask if you were going to mention that. I've given Stephen Dorff some grief. But not for this movie. There's so many roles that Steven Dorff does. Not the first role that he's ever done, which was The Gate. Intermittent roles between The Gate and Judgment Night. And between Judgment Night and this other movie that you're about to mention. All those other roles, he just has this smarmy punch him in the face face. And he plays this attitude, like, that's all he can do. That's what he sounds like his face does in these roles. And, and actors do this. Actors get comfortable in doing the same exact things. I remember when George Clooney says, Steven Soderbergh po- finally broke me of this weird habit where I have my head down, but I look up with my eyes. In these mannerisms, you have to change or people get sick of it. Like uh, That's why people are sick of like Nicolas Cage. He kept repeating himself over the last decade. And that's... The point where people are just fed up with it. The, this thing that Steven Dorff did, uh, his autopilot, I guess, for those things, is why I was always like, Oh, Steven Dorff! He did it in Blade, and I like Blade. But he did it in Blade, and I'm like, just like, ah, I guess it works because you're a butthole in Blade, but anything else until <laughs> wheeler just came out a couple months ago I, it's it's weird that movies now come out in theaters in february and they're out on dvd in april like, what the hell is that that's so strange yeah but i rented wheeler and it's a love letter to country music which he grew up with and his brother who had died a year ago who wrote tons of country songs that were huge hits and in it he decides to play almost in a, like a borat fashion where he's playing a character he never reveals who he is and everybody around him is real or for the most part are real not actors and he decided to cover himself in small appliances and he had like these special eyebrows and a little bit of nose thing and think for his lower and an extra chin and change his appearance like he's got like you can kind of see it's him but not him and he said having that makeup made him realize that he's repeating himself with these certain facial movements these dwarfisms and that that kept him from doing those and he, he finally realized that he's been repeating himself so many times that hopefully future roles will you know have him remember not to do those things that people are sick of the smarmy looks. yeah so here at this movie he does do a little bit of smarmy looks but they're totally appropriate and it's earlier on in his career that it's not an autopilot sort of thing but in wheeler everything that i saw of wheeler that he did one he doesn't sound like steven dorf at all actually he looks like a younger let's say like 1989 version of dennis quaid yeah i can see that but with a mustache i would say it's his finest performance and it's about time you know you you have to do something by the time you're 50 if you haven't made a, a role change people usually throw you away i hope that people notice this film and he gets some better roles yeah i i agree also i just want to say if ever i lament about an actor usually unless i know personally or have like it's really obvious that the actor is a horrible horrible human being i'm not going to rejoice in that person not doing a good performance i'm not going to actually be like i want to really punch him it's not something that i want to do <laughs> it's just a feeling that i get so i'm being candid about my feelings however However, I don't really want to punch him in the face. And I'm so glad that he did what he did with Wheeler. And earlier on in his career is not the area in which I'm talking about. And this is earlier on. No, we're talking post-Blade. Blade is when he started repeating himself like crazy and getting into all sorts of trouble and being like, you know, kind of almost self-destruction. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't seen everything that he's done. I have not seen everything that he's done. 
but yeah. But you've seen enough where it kind of feels like a, it's a pattern. Yeah. This is right after he got a lot of notice for Power of One, which I've never seen, but I think that's how he got on the radar with this film. Stephen Norrington, Stephen Hopkins just coming off of Predator 2 and finally switching out of the horror genre into action. And, and he would kind of bounce in and out. He would do action horror, action horror, and, and now he does whatever he wants. Yeah, now, uh, okay, like now he, he's kind of like a hired director, a hired gun director, whereas this point in time, Stephen Hopkins' style was actually coming through. Later, he did a movie called Blown Away, which was very much a stylistic version of a domestic terrorism story. But it had visuals that were very stylistic. And there are moments in this film that have those kinds of visuals that you're like, this is a Stephen Hopkins film! (laughs) Did he patent that first, like... I don't think it was until I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Did he patent that look where it's uh, two different focuses, like a split No, I'll tell you who worked on that a lot. Brian De Palma did that a lot. And I think, yes, he did. If there's a documentary called De Palma, it should be called De Palma on De Palma, or De Palma talks about himself for five hours, because that's all it is. It's a camera (laughs) on Brian De Palma, and then there's a couple of clips of what he's talking about, but it's a very long documentary about him patting himself on the back about how innovative he was. And, yeah. Yes, he was innovative. Focus forward and focus in the background. It's a sort of a split screen. He did that a lot. I'm not sure he pioneered it. I think maybe it was Hitchcock who did it, but he really picked up. He loved Hitchcock's stuff, so he positively ripped him off a lot. And Hopkins yeah. uses that I mean, in we, this film a lot. And the camera's constantly moving, but moving in not the way it moves now. You know, it always seems like ever since Saving Private Ryan, you know, the camera's been jittery, like shaking, trying to be authentic, and it makes me want to vomit. The camera moves constantly in Judgment Night, but it doesn't a very very smooth, beautiful fashion. My favorite camera movement is this is, okay, so to pick up the plot, they decide to take an off-ramp to cut around traffic to get to the uh, boxing match, and they end up going the wrong direction, they accidentally hit somebody who's already been shot, and there's a sequence very, very quiet, ominous. Here's the thing that's different than the other movies, is that, yes, there are claustrophobic stuff as they're in buildings and under tunnels and stuff like this on the run, but there's this wide-open, like, ghost town feel to the ghetto. Like, no one is out on the street. Because it's a factory warehouse area that they're going through and eventually by the end they end up after hours in a grocery store so it's absolutely not populated but i kind of like that i mean yes it's cost efficient but i kind of like the fact that everywhere they are is so sparsely filled but there's a sequence right after they hit the guy the camera moves up as emilio estevez is looking out the sunroof out into the streets to see and the camera's coming up you guys if it was a living entity you almost wonder if there's a bad guy gonna come after him i love that movement and you know like like the thing right before they hit the guy with the paper kind of slowly flying around yeah um it's very creepy it's, it's right a, it's a yeah it's a beautiful movie in a way even though the, the the subject matter is pretty ugly yeah so they hit the guy and they try to help the guy while uh piven's like no 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 we gotta go we gotta go we gotta go let's call for help later and tell somebody you know we'll call for the cops while we're down the road but they have to help the guy so they pull him on board turns out that he stole a bunch of money from some thugs from dennis weaver leary who was hot on mtv all the time doing his riffs on MTV and House of Style and all that stuff. He was hot on Comedy Central when it was called Ha! Yeah. Or the Comedy Network, whatever it's called. He was a hot comedian, and uh, he also had an MTV hit song called Asshole. Do you remember that? A-S-S-H-O-L-E You're asshole! He was a hot dude at the time. And one of the other co-villains was played by Everlast of House of Pain. Also, Peter Green, 
pre. Oh, I love Peter Green. You do you really love him? I don't know who the other guy is. I, I like Peter Green. I think he's got this weird, seductive. He's he's kind of like this weird, beautiful, ugly thing too. Like I don't know how you spell. He's uh, you are Eon Flux. Yeah, I, I, no, Eon Flux. Yeah, he reminds me almost of a, a live-action version of one of those characters where there was this weird brutality, but at the same time he had this strange beauty about him. Hmm. Like sharp features, he always plays a thug. He he, was, he played one of the dudes in Pulp Fiction with the Gimp. He was also the main villain in The Mask. So most people actually probably have seen him from Pulp Fiction or The Mask. I would say most people know him from yeah. The Mask. It's a much more you know kid friendly film. And then he actually did another movie called Clean Shaven, which I don't really remember too much about, other than that it had to do with mental illness. Yeah, that's the first time I think I ever heard of him. Like, you know, by name. I, I, it was critically acclaimed, I think, at the time. Got a lot of notice, but I've never seen him. Yeah, so he's a notable actor. I don't know if he's doing anything else. Well, he's a bad, he's a bad guy in Blue Streak, which was a big hit. I know that. All right. So he does... He's always... He's, he's one of those theatrical, real actors. He has a lot of indies. He's, but then when he gets a big job, he's always a villain. Always. Yeah. And the other guy, actually, I don't really know his name too well, but I recognize his face... And he's been a TV actor and stuff like this since. A lot of working actors in this film. And Emilio Estevez is the the main hero guy. And he's got to keep care of his friends. He's got to keep care of his brother. And you have this really interesting thing that happens. It's almost like what happens with William Sadler in Trespass. Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, who's the charismatic one, the fun-loving one, ends up kind of flipping and becoming a, a bit more trouble. The only two people who aren't so much trouble are Emilio and his brother. And they're the people who are at odds with each other most of the time when there is no trouble. Yeah, it's it's if you look at it, a lot of the problems are created by Jeremy Piven and Cuba Gooding Jr. Cuba Gooding Jr. goes savage almost, like just so like kind of loses it. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy Piven's always trying to do like some sort of wheeling dealing, even if it's only in his own head. He's wheeling and dealing, and it causes him a problem. A lot of the things like in the beginning, you know, the, the gun and the fact that they had a phone that worked, but he did not do it because he didn't want to be involved. You know, like in his insurance or the cops asking because he was drinking, right? Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of this would have stopped immediately if his character hadn't been such like, oh my god, I'm gonna get busted or whatever. You know, this whole thing, I gotta keep quiet. You know, and just dumb. And he's like, no cell reception. Yeah, no cell reception. It's early cell phones, so no cell reception. Oh man, we can't. The cops. We let's just go and call the cops later. Being the machismo character, it's not played in a way. I see this in a lot of movies where if a black character is there, he's going to be played in a black way right and they never ever do they that don't do it it still somewhat serves a similar role but i don't think it has to do with black i just think it has to do with uh, machismo it's not a black machismo it's just a machismo that cuba has so when cuba gooding jr first gets the taste of blood it's like a fledgling vampire he just kind of needs more he's like this this is what it's like to be a man so this has a, an odd commentary about this one character is is not understanding really what it's like to be a man he's misunderstanding i think whereas yeah well he there there's something that i'm interested in he says you know after he shoots and they're out in the street again and he gets mad at emil estevez and he goes i don't get it you use that bigger balls than anybody is that what you think this is about balls 
What about using your damn brain? What were they when they were younger? Yeah, you're right. Like, were they? I think maybe they were just like townies. They hang out at the bar type of thing and get in bar fights. Get into bar fights, or maybe they're on a sports team together. It isn't Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character wear a letter jacket? Am I wrong? Or someone? It's wore a. a it's kind of like a. Yeah, it's a letter jacket, but it's like a bomber letter jacket thing. Okay. Oh no, it's the homeless guy that says that he used to play college football. Okay. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. Oh, this movie has so many great tense set pieces and the whole time they they get disabled with their vehicle so they do have to travel across the town and or or across the the warehouses and stuff into the train yard and they come upon some homeless people in a car and they have to bargain with them they're giving them watches they're giving them money they're giving them wallets it's so tense and then of course after all of that bargaining and they're about to get away one of them starts talking up because he's a homeless man who's uh, got a fried brain of some sort it's really a good tense film this movie is a horror film in a way yeah it does everything why, uh, what horror movies hopkins was yeah hopkins was the excellent choice for this yeah it does everything what horror movies should do it ramps the tension and finally by the end of it you're so relieved yeah you're there's... saddened by certain things there are stakes here yeah i mean it done by a different director I think they would have played up the action part of it. Whereas these are more tension set pieces. The the climbing across in that rickety little... Oh my god, it's still so insane that they climbed. What, are they like six stories up? Yeah. And they're climbing across this thing that's ready to fall apart. You know, that's a great sequence. Mm-hmm. Then you have, like, uh, the, the sequence where after some of them have taken some bullets and, and they're trying to hide in that storage unit while Emilio goes to run for help. And they're just right outside the door, ready to grab the door handle. The way he shoots that, he shoots it in a horror fashion, not in an action movie fashion. It's an extremely tense movie, but at the same time, thrilling. And I gotta tell you that, that the tribal pounding of the drums from Alan Silvestri's score really helps this movie. Yeah. I didn't know because I hadn't seen it since probably 2000. 2006 or 7 yeah that it would hold up still and it does yeah i watch this pretty every couple years but i am waiting i'm really hoping that shop factory does a uh, a full-blown version of this now that they're finally going outside of their horror catalog that they've optioned from universal you know like they just released streets of fire and midnight run i'm hoping they tap into more i mean judgment night is almost a horror. well it seems that this is like a sony product because soundtrack is out on sony yeah. epic so i don't know well universal owns gonna... the rights but here's the weird thing is largo produced it and i've seen largo has done something with their catalog i saw that because uh, they did time cop warner brothers put out time mm. cop recently with Bloodsport, which is weird and then they put out another movie they produced point break point break was originally from fox but largo just sold the rights to warner brothers so i don't know who owns judgment night at this point i'm hoping it's still universal because they'll license it to shop factory but if not warner brothers has always been really really stingy with their catalog the, some of these movies yeah, just make now sense. are getting a or a widescreen version of it, which is ridiculous because DVD's been out for... Warner Brothers is a backwards company. I don't get yeah. them. I used to be like, I saw, I saw the Warner Brothers logo and it was all because of Batman. Bring it back down to Batman. <laughs> it was all because of Batman. I was like, Warner Brothers, I'm with them. Ugh, I'm not with them. I've not been with them for years. All because they're just a backwards company. Yeah, they're, they're stingy with their do, They do everything with, wrong. Yeah, I don't Their archive collection. I was like, well, if you're going to do archive collection and charge double the price, you should add some special features. Nope. Yeah, they do everything wrong. It's frustrating. It's ridiculous. I don't like Warner Brothers. I wish I did. The fact that I can't get a version of National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 full of extra features. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's really funny. Another Emilio movie. I love Emilio Estevez. Seriously, during this time, I think Free Jack is highly underrated. Uh, of course, I'm obsessed with Young Guns 2 to the point when I was a kid, I wrote an outline for Young Guns 3. <laughs> what was it? How did you... Uh, Oh, Let's no. say this. It was it was uh, supposed to be when he was older, and they were going up against. <laughs> geez, I'm embarrassed to even say this. It was much later when they were taking on mobsters in the 1920s. Oh no! Which I think Emilio's probably around the right age now, and they can do that. It'd be like Last Man Standing, another Walter Hill movie. Yeah, he could just uh, he could uh, train a whole new era of uh, young uh, Western people <laughs> and go up against the gangsters. Meh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, of course, so let's not I forget th- Mighty Ducks! <laughs> I think uh, that's our list, really. No, it's that's... the longest episode we've done in years. Yeah, but it'll be cut. <laughs> I know. It's gonna, but it's it was fun. Nice. I could talk about... We could have done an entire episode just about Judgment Night. Sometimes, especially earlier on, it would be a trudge getting through these movies, but no, this one was fine. Yeah. Absolutely fine. And I'm really... Really happy with how Judgment Night held up. Good, good. So. And I, I'm glad you liked uh, Enemy Territory and Run more than I thought you would. Yeah, well, Enemy Territory of the two, I actually like more because it, it seems to have more to say. So, I, I actually have gotten, since being married to my wife, she's been a good influence on me about what things say and looking at themes in films. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've been picking things up like that. Like in Judgment Night, the theme is not just friends, not just surviving the brutality of the city, but also his brother and he and all that stuff there's themes of family and friends and so on so yeah good stuff all right everybody that is it for us with video night i think thank you i can't believe we're, we're headed towards three years now yeah stay tuned for a big bug episode Ah, oh, big bugs no starship troopers though we i think you can no come on everybody's that's discussed too, that one yeah that's one of the popular ones no this is big bugs most likely on earth all right uh, on that note everybody bye-bye i gotta pee the look of your lips get over here my favorite Ah! this is going to be a failure and by that we mean master fridge all day all day Uh unwholesome language emilio